You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, otherwise known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Zoe Selengit, a Washington, D.C.-based writer. She also works as a cataloger of rare and unusual books, ephemera, and other surprising cultural materials for Brian Cassidy, bookseller. Zoe, hi. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. How are you? It has just been a bad couple of weeks. It has for uh, the world. Um, yeah, I world's terrible. Um, mm-hmm. I live in D.C., so I'm close to all the terrible, terribleness. Um, I had shoulder surgery recently, so if I'm loopier than usual, I'm going to blame it on that. And Please not, do. I think that that's my, uh, my privilege, yes. Um, aside from that, I'm great, though. Okay. I, I'm very, very glad to hear that you are doing well. Not everyone is. And so... It's always great to hear that someone's like, no, I can definitely be upright for the rest of the day. I'm yes. going to be able to pull that off. Well, I mean, maybe I should wait till I've done it, but I think I can. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. No, I mean, hopefully we will not be answering questions such that they just put you out of commission for the rest of the afternoon. Um, but, you know, I guess today you get to catalog rare and unusual problems. <laughs> yes. I'm so sorry. Um, no, that's uh, very true. Very true. And yes, one of the, I think only one of them is extremely upsetting. And the last one, the last one is the best question I ever saw. Yeah, I I have been trying lately to balance not just having like a relentless series of really, really upsetting questions. So I've been trying to kind of like figure out a flow such that we're not always ending on a really rough note, or just like, you know, going through a series of just desperately unhappy situations. So yes, um, yeah, I I think we've got a good mix today. um, And I hope that we will be able to be useful to these people. And uh, we're just going to get started with um, the subject is overworked and underpaid. Dear Prudence, I work for a well-known nonprofit and make around $27,000 a year and work long but flexible hours. While this is not ideal, I'm a recent graduate with low living expenses, and I feel the training I'm getting is worth it for the next year or so. However, I just learned that one of my coworkers has been having trouble with her rent, borrows regularly from her parents, and visits a food bank. I find it pretty horrifying that those of us who took jobs to help the public are not paid a living wage. My organization has made it pretty clear that they are not interested in hearing anything about this issue. I know they have money. I personally helped fundraise over $300,000 for them over this past summer. I believe strongly in our mission, but it feels wrong to me to be working here and supporting this type of system. Short of quitting on the spot, what should I do? Man. Mm-hmm. I have some. What should they do? Well, so this is, I, I should say, I, 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 perhaps I shouldn't feel this way, but since you are the prudent one by the um, name of the the name of the show uh, i feel mm-hmm. like i'm i have a little more leeway to be reckless as i like to be uh i think i wish perhaps for legal reasons it couldn't be done but i wish they had named the nonprofit because people like to know these things um i it's not completely clear to me that they know for a fact the other coworker makes the same or similar salary uh it, it would be it would be a problem if it was the same but if it was even lower it would be much more clear cut um, yeah, I, I will say just because I'm very much in sympathy with this person. And I think they are very well-intentioned. I would be careful of saying that, you know, they have the money unless you've actually seen their operating budget and where that money goes, because it, the raw number of uh, how many dollars was taken in doesn't tell you everything. Um, I have a suspicion that may not be correct, that this might be one of those I mean, there's fundraising jobs and fundraising jobs. If this is one of those situations where you stand with a clipboard all day getting people to sign petitions and give you money, I have done a similar job and I've known people who did such jobs. And yes, they are exploitative and bad, but it's a slightly different situation than if you are full-time with 
benefits and I'm not the, it, the, the overall principle was the same, but the details might make some difference. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, a, a couple things like, you know, one one of the things that you can do um, is uh, sharing with your coworkers uh, how much you make, asking them how much they make. Again, not like stopping by someone's cubicle and saying, like, how much do you make? Um, but as a general principle, sharing that information with your coworkers um, in an attempt to help one another um, demand raises whenever possible. Um, and that that is useful information that generally speaking, management wants everyone to feel very uncomfortable about and like it is rude. Um, and that is one of the many ways in which they can get away with pairing, paying different kinds of people way less than they should. Oh, also, um, also just if you're fresh out of college and you don't, if this is your first job as a recent graduate or or one of the, one of your first few jobs, you may not know what is acceptable. And like like you said, just said, like, employers do thrive on you not knowing. And you right. are entitled to tell people and they are right. able to tell you that it's okay yes. and it is a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, and that another thing you can do um, is there are sites like Glassdoor where people can anonymously post um, their positions at various companies as well as what they make. Uh, and that can be helpful to other people applying for jobs there to get a sense for what the company is paying. Um, so look for different ways that you can help other employees advocate for themselves and get as much information as possible. Um I, I certainly think you should encourage this coworker to ask for a raise um, and, you know, do whatever you can within reason to be useful to her. You know, I, I admire your your kind of question of like, should I just like quit on the spot? Um, given how many companies enjoy not paying people a living wage, um, I don't think that that's going to necessarily be um yeah, a no. good idea for you in the long run. I understand because it can feel like this is supposedly a company that is invested in the public good, and yet they're paying us, you know, uh, very, very little. Um, right. You know. And where, I mean, what I what I was thinking of is recklessness is just that if you are to the point where you can afford to quit and you want to quit, don't just walk out. Like, tell them why and make them listen to you. And if you don't know, you may not know if they offer exit interviews, and those don't always mean much. Um, I have heard the exact opposite advice given pretty much all the time, but I personally have stormed out of a job or two while telling people my opinions about that job. How did that go for you? It was the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was like, did it work? Like, did it work out well? Like, did it have any repercussions or? Well, it made me feel better. It okay. so so that's a no. But um, <laughs> but it did not have any. There's always a risk of retaliation, but I think that it's not necessarily as bad as you might think because p businesses of all types, not just nonprofits, are able to egregiously underpay, especially young people and entry-level people, because there's such a large unending supply of them. People want mm -hmm. to do good. People expect to make very little money when they're at their first job. And that means that you have little bargaining power, but it also means they're not going to go after you and ruin your career most likely. And I shouldn't say that as if I know, but it there's it is often possible to say things that you think you can't say. You shouldn't start yelling and cursing and standing on chairs unless that's really your style. But it, even if it is your style, I think you yeah, should question well, whether or not that should be not. your style. But uh, but if you if you're like I said, if you're going to quit. So that you're not afraid. There's a lot that you can do once you're not afraid anymore. If you're not afraid mm -hmm. of being fired, you have freedom to speak until you're walked out of the building. And you should be strategic about it. But I would certainly not want to leave without saying something. And the first step would be to speak to as many coworkers at your level as you can, because a group of people is better than being alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be your best bet, especially because so many workplaces, whether they are a nonprofit or not, you are going to run into the same problem again and again. So part of the question is going to be both, you know, how do you make sure that you are able to pay your own rent um, as well as how can you do the most that you can as an individual in helping your colleagues and coworkers, yeah. um, you know, band together to to demand, you know, living wages. And I think that like part of what is so, so, you know, awful about this practice is like the coworker in question is able to borrow money from her parents. Right. Um, right. Which means that this is a job where you need to have parents with money. Yes. Um, 
like and and even so she's going to a food bank regularly um which means that if you have parents who do not have just like extra money if you are supporting your parents by sending money back to them every month um yeah you're not going to be able to get this kind of job so this is like creating the kind of industry where everybody who starts has to have wealthy parents yes um, and I, maybe I not also... the 1% but parents who have enough money to send you some which is not everybody not even most people right right and even even if Again, because the, I'm sure the, the writer doesn't know all of the personal details of this other person, but even if this the struggling coworker is part time or even an intern, that doesn't give you the freedom to get another full time job that does have benefits and does pay you fairly. It doesn't actually help you to sustain yourself, even if on paper it looks like a fair hourly rate. Um, and it's always, I think it's always a bad move to start worrying about what the company can and cannot afford to do because that kind of empathy only ever seems to go one way. The company is not, or the, the nonprofit is not concerning itself with what you can and cannot live on. So I sort of wish that I'd had this question a little while back because I had Talia Jane on the show a while back and you may remember her for oh, writing yes. an open letter to her I CEO do. when I she do. was at Yelp I read um, that, talking yes. about the ways in which she was not able to to make a living for herself in the Bay Area despite working a full-time job. Um, and there right. was a lot of, you know, controversy because, it, it, you know, uh, among other things, she was a, a a young woman talking about wanting to be able to support herself. And that makes some right. people how, very... How angry. dare she? How dare she? Um, yes. Yeah. And this idea that, like, only if you work, you know, uphill both ways, 95 hours a week, do you deserve to have uh, the ability to support yourself? And you'll see this in like heartwarming stories of like the guy who walks like three miles to work every, or like 10 miles to work every morning. And so his CEO, after two years of this, gives him a car as if we're all in this competition to martyr ourselves so like cinematically that we are rewarded with things like a car or enough money to pay the rent and buy food. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think a universal basic income is a fantastic idea. I agree. Um, and uh, I, God, I hope that your nonprofit is not working towards that um, because if they were, that would be uh, deeply upsetting. But yeah, I, I think, you know, quitting out of solidarity is not the move right now. Um, but certainly advocating for yourself. Like, I, I know that you're coming up with a lot of reasons why it's kind of okay for them to pay you $27,000 a year. And, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in, it may um, not not be uh, incredibly difficult to make ends meet. But, you know, certainly don't don't let the company talk you out of advocating for yourself before you start. Like, well, it's fine for me. Um, like, push for a raise whenever possible. Um, share that information with your coworkers. Um, you know, and, and frankly, like, you know, talk to your bosses when you do regular reports and just say, like, I'm concerned that we're not paying people enough to to make ends meet. Again, do this without like going into details about your coworkers' living situation. That's not your information to share. Um, but you know, right. make it a point to to talk about it. And and if people get a little uncomfortable, that's okay. I do wonder, and this is total speculation, and I think that they would probably have mentioned this, but there are nonprofit fundraising jobs where your pay is sort of, I want to say commission-based, but like is a percentage of what you take in as donations. And that can lead to people doing the same job, making wildly different amounts. And I think that that is indefensible as a practice. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like paying people below a minimum wage if they get tips. It's not, it's not a fair way of doing things. Um, and it can mask how close to real grinding poverty some people are because if certain stars are making a lot, then you don't, you can pretend that you don't know that not all of your people are making enough to live on. So if that's yeah. any part of it, that's another big problem. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think, you know, there's some stuff that's going to be available to you. There's some things that you're just not going to be able to change um, either today or even in the in the long run. Um, but I, I hope that you are able to find ways to be useful both to yourself and to your coworkers um, and to remember that, as always, management is not your friend. Um, this next letter, which I think it's it's your turn to read, is probably the heaviest one um, that we have. It's about trauma within the family and how to talk about um, sexual abuse. Oh, um, yes. Um, yeah. Yes. So this, this, this I have is... actual notes on because it's such a serious it's, – it's an upsetting and a – yes. So shall yeah. I read it? I'll read this one. Please. Thank All you. Right. The subject is confronting trauma within the family. Dear Prudence, I am the youngest and only girl in my family. 
When I was around age six, my oldest brother, by 10 years, touched me inappropriately. I was always aware of what he did, but I didn't realize until adulthood that he was using my body to masturbate. I can recall it in vivid detail. My mother left the family a few years after that, and my father was largely absent. I was actually very close with said brother. I've only recently realized the seriousness of what he did to me. My question is, how do I reconcile this awful thing he did to me versus all the decent stuff after? Do I confront only him or the whole family? I'm scared that no one will believe me or that no one will, re will react at all. I'm exhausted from carrying this shame. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I mean, I, I almost hate to say this because I'm afraid it sounds patronizing, but I, I, I of course, believe you and you shouldn't have to carry the shame. It's his shame, not yours. Um, I, I think, and correct me if, if you think I'm reading this wrong, I take this to mean when, when she says oldest brother by 10 years, I take that to mean he's at least 10 years older than she is. Is that right? Possibly more. Yes. Yeah. My read on that was that he was 16 and she was right. six. So, yeah. so technically both minors, but it is, not, it is not a situation where he has the excuse of also being a child. In my, in my right. No, opinion. it's not like you were both uh, roughly within the same age range, which, again, would not make it cool right. or OK, um, but would at least be something to consider. You know, he was two years away from being able to vote. Um, he was much, much, much older than you. Yes. Um, he, he was not working with the same level of cognition as a six year old by a long shot. And I, I almost wonder, since since she says that her mother had left the family uh, and the father was, I don't know if this means emotionally or physically absent or both, but it suggests to me that a brother that much older, even if he didn't behave, obviously didn't behave like a parent, he might have sort of, someone that much Had older a parenting than you. role in the family? Yeah, you don't just, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it worse because I don't think anything makes it worse. It's all bad, but it's another, another despicable thing about doing this. Um, I have, I do want to say though that like that when, when you say, to the letter writer, when you when you say that you're afraid of these things, I have some tentative advice, but I do want to say that I think that your fears make perfect sense. And yeah. it, the the thing that's really hard about this is that no one can tell you that you're being silly and this, these things won't happen because we, I think we all know, we should all know that you don't know what will happen. And yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's why, that's why it's difficult to decide what to do because you don't know. And that's not yeah. your imagination and that's not your trauma telling you that that's that's true. That's a real fear. Yeah. And and I wish so much that that weren't the case. But the number of letters I get from people who say, you know, I finally came forward and told my family that another member of the family abused me. And often the family's response is some version of I don't think that that really happened. Um, I'm sure you're misremembering um, or I'm sure it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Or it's been a really long time and you need to let it go. And that's not to say that will absolutely be your family's response, so you should just give up to protect yourself now. But I, I mostly just want to say that to affirm that that's a real fear, and I understand where you're coming from in that. And I'm so sorry. And I wish that that were not um, such a common response in families um, to shut down the conversation before it even starts. But I, I, I get where you're coming from. And I think I would never, I would never tell someone that they should or shouldn't be in therapy or have a therapist, that's a completely personal decision. But I think, I'm not even going to say this advice. I'm just going to say this is what I would do, and it might not be a good idea. But what I would do, if it were me, I would want to have someone on my side who was not related to me, so that no matter what happened when I spoke to my family, there was one person I could go back to who was not part of this circle, who would not be affected by any reaction they had. Because I think part of the fear is that like you tip over one domino, and then Whoever you speak to first, the abuser or your other brothers or your parents, they all, if one has a bad reaction, it sort of spreads and then they're all against you. And mm -hmm. I think for your own emotional safety, it would be good to have someone who will not be influenced by anything they think or they say, who, who will be on your side no matter what, whether that's a therapist or a good friend or anybody else, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I want to try to do more often on the podcast is to kind of list a few alternatives for somebody who can't afford therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say, you know, like the, the the 
ideal situation if money is not an object um, is to start seeing a therapist who specializes in helping people um, process childhood sexual abuse um, and related trauma. Um, And if that is not possible, um, to consider booking a handful of sessions, like targeted sessions for both before and after talking to your family so that you can have kind of a plan of who do I want to talk to first? How do I want to talk about it? How will I end the conversation if it starts to go off the rails? Um, and, and, and how do I want to go about conducting this? And then also one or two sessions for after you have done that to sort of check in um, and to make sure that you have been able to um, stick to your plan as much as possible, that you are able to take care of yourself, um, and so that somebody is helping you kind of clarify what your goals are in these conversations. Um, if that is not possible, if you have a trusted friend. Um, And again, I I realize that this may not be something that you want to talk about, even with a close friend. And um, so if that just feels like something that you're not able to do right now with any of the people in your social circle, even just having a journal and kind of writing out, you know, what's the worst possible outcome if I have this conversation? What's the best possible outcome? Uh, What's the worst possible outcome if I don't have this conversation? And what's the best possible outcome there? Um, And to kind of write out a series of, if this happens, I might choose to do this. Um, Here's the kind of conversation I am open to having. Here's the kind of conversation that I don't think will be good or helpful for me. What's the line where if somebody crosses it, I'm going to have to say, we cannot be in contact. Um, What will I do and who will I turn to and how will I reach out for support if I decide I have to pull back from my family so that I don't feel totally isolated? Um, Just, I think... Thinking about these things ahead of time so that you, if nothing else, think, I know what I'm going to do in the worst case scenario um, will will be helpful towards helping you make a decision. And again, I say all that because I could understand you deciding to have that conversation. I could understand if you decided you're not ready to do it. Um, it, there's, There's no decision that you could make that I don't think would be good because it would be the one that is looking out for you. But you do say that you're exhausted from carrying this shame. And so I do think that that is at least um, a, a point in favor of having the conversation, even if it ultimately means you are not able to be in contact with some of the members of your family for a while, because it sounds like what you've been doing for years, which is trying to focus on the good and to ignore and hide the bad, um, is eating you up and making you feel exhausted. And I don't want that for you. I I understand. This is not a situation I have personal experience of, but I do think I understand really well why you might not want to tell, even though you want people to know. Because when you tell someone about this, unless they react extremely well, you're giving up the hope that you may have that they'll react well. You, you, as long as it's a secret, you can imagine that it might go well, and. Yeah, you don't have to know for sure, and it, like you said, you know, it, it not knowing does eat you up eventually, but it protects you for a while, and mm-hmm. it's it's very fair to me like that that you would want to keep that as long as you can, and if you decide that you can't do that anymore, that's fair too. There yeah. there isn't any wrong choice, but it's I think it'll be hard, but there there isn't any wrong choice. And I get that, yeah, because right now there's at least that thought of nobody else knows. Um, and so there's the hope that if they did, they would support me. Um, but if I say it and they don't, then that will be a compounding of the initial betrayal. Um, and it will come from everybody who knows me. Um, and that would be devastating. So again, that's part of why I would encourage you to either set up sessions with a therapist or talk to other people in your life, um, before doing this so that you have support in place in case, you know, the worst happens and they say, we don't want to hear about this. We don't believe you or it wasn't that bad. And the only, I'm sorry, the only thing I, I did, I didn't want to forget to say this because there were, there were a couple parts to the question. And when she said, my question is, how do I reconcile this awful thing he did to me with the decent things he did afterwards? This, people talk about reconciliation in this sense a lot and I don't understand it at all because mm. people do more than one thing not just in their lives, in a day. You know what I mean? Like, mm. At one point today, I, I'm i sitting in a chair right now, I was standing up before. I don't reconcile those two things because they're not in conflict. They're two different things that I've done. And you don't purchase the right to hurt someone by doing good things. And you don't pay for it after the fact by doing good things. 
it right. does not it is not like reconciling accounts where if the numbers add up right then then it's okay and i i don't think that this is what she means by reconcile but if you mean i, I, make I understand it, what you mean yeah cuz like the fear would be that somebody else would say you know, but look at all the other ways in which he like stepped up and helped raise us. So shouldn't you let it go? Right. Or, um, or and it, so, how could a decent person do this? Well, I mean, the easy, obvious answer is he's not really a decent person, which I think is the case. But even if you, even I mean, you want to have a good brother. You really want that, and you want to have a brother who wouldn't do this. Right. And that's what he took away. He took away himself he took away himself as a good brother and he destroyed it mm-hmm. and in the insofar as I, I feel i feel like in a way when she says how can i reconcile it she means how can i keep the good brother that i yeah. i remember and i don't i don't know um i'm not sure he's real and i think that's the worst part of it and yeah. i really feel for her and and I think for this letter writer to say, like, you know, my mother left the family. My father was absent. Um, and the only person in her family that she mentions with any sense of connection or closeness is just that one line. I was actually very close with him. Yeah. And she has uh, other brothers, so pa- too, right? Because. Yeah. And I don't. Yeah. There's no there's no real hint of of how that those relationships are. So I can't really. Yeah. And it, so, yeah, just as you say, there's that fear of. um if this goes badly, if I can't reconcile these things, if I let myself really deal with the seriousness and the weight um, of the abuse that he committed against me, what will I have when I think of my family? Will I be able to think back on any memory of love or closeness or affection that is not tainted? And how will I live my life? Um, because that's 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 really painful. Um, and so I would just say to that, you know, um, if there are ever things that feel meaningful or important to you to remember, um, uh, you can do that. You are allowed to do that. You are allowed to remember with fondness things that also came from the person who abused you. Nobody is abusive 24-7. Um, everybody also does other things. That does not that does not mitigate um, or explain away the fact that he abused you sexually when you were a very young child. Um, so I don't I don't have like some great way of tying that all up i just mostly mean you know if you felt loved in those moments that's real you don't have to let go of that um but it also does not mean that you should not speak about it now or that he has earned the right to have this be forgotten um i think that's the most important part so then the other question is do i confront only him or the whole family again i think that would be up to you um Keep in mind, you know, not just your physical safety, but your emotional safety. Like if 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 being in a room alone with him and having a conversation about this in person were he to deny it or to get angry or hostile sounds like too much. And frankly, I think it sounds like too much. Um, think about whether or not you would like to put something in writing um, or, or do it over the phone. And if you would like to have somebody else with you on the other end um, to be there for you and to help you and to check in if you need to get off the phone um, and to plan out in advance you know, how, what do you want to say? Do you want to start by saying like, the reason I have not talked about this um, for a long time is because I've been afraid no one would believe me um, or that nobody would care. Um, but I'm exhausted from feeling ashamed. And I know that this is not my shame to carry. Um, you know, when I was young, um, you molested me. You were 16 and I was six. And I've carried that with me my whole life. We've never talked about it. Um, I, I, I just want to say out loud that happened. That was wrong. That was real. And you should not have done it. Um, and and if there's other things that you want to add to that, if there's other things you want to ask either of him or of your other family members, um, you know, consider how, how you would want to put all that together. Um, but I, I think it's really up to you whether or not you want to start with him or whether or not you want to start with somebody else. Um, if you're if you're at all close with any of your other siblings or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle that you have some kind of relationship with where you think that they would be a good person to start with, you could absolutely start with somebody else. You don't owe him like the f- the chance to have the first conversation. Um, I agree. Yes. Yeah. And again, you know, take stock. Like if that conversation goes badly, give yourself permission to say like, this is really overwhelming and difficult for me. I'm going to hang up or I'm going to go. Um, you know, you do not have to um, go into a big back and forth if somebody wants to get argumentative or if they simply can't accept the fact that somebody in their family abused you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I really, really hope that at least one member of your family believes you and is furious and devastated on your behalf. Yeah, they should be. Yeah, they should be. That's the thing. It's just when somebody in your family says that somebody else in the family abused them, the first reaction should not be nothing or I don't believe you. Um, That's just across the board. Not a good way to respond. And I think especially I, I don't I don't get the sense that that she's in contact with her mother, although she might be. But this seems like a situation where your parents might justifiably feel guilty for not protecting you because one was physically absent. The other was, you said, largely absent. Um, Yeah. That would be very, very hard, but it would speak to their characters and not to yours. I mean, I'm sure you know that, but that would be their horrible fault that would be yours. And ultimately, I think the thing for you to bear in mind is there is a huge pain and loss with not being in contact with family members. I don't want to undersell that. I don't want to, you know, play that down. But I will say that being in contact with your family the way that you have been has left you exhausted from carrying shame. Um, And so even if you have this conversation, it does not go well. Um, If you need to protect yourself and if you need to say, I can't have a relationship that is predicated on my denying the abuse that happened to me. Um. That's a really, really okay boundary to draw, and it may, in fact, feel better than the kind of pain you're in now. Again, if you think about this and you decide that's not worth it to me, you do not have to do this, um, but it, it, at least you will not be carrying the pain of, well, we're all going to you know, have dinner next week, and you know, that dinner is going to rest on my putting on a happy face and pretending that I wasn't abused. So again, only you can decide what um, situations you are and aren't willing to put yourself in. You can also, by the way, I would just like to give you a third option, which is to just step back from your family entirely and to not have this conversation right now Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, God knows, you can always cut off your family. And I mean that. I'm not trying to be funny. I I really mean that. Yeah. Especially in a situation like this, that... Um, that would be okay, um, that you do not owe them anything. Uh, you know, again, that's, that's given your situation, that's, that's really, really true, that if what you need to do right now is to just go radio silent for a while and then decide whether or not you would later like to have this conversation, you can do that too. Yeah, you, 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 you get to do whatever you need to do right now. Um, and I hope that you will stay in touch and let us know how you're doing and how you're looking out for yourself, whether or not you do decide to talk to your family about this. And again, I'm just so sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. This is deeply painful. And I hope that whether it's a therapist or other friends or, or more distant family members, that there is at least one person in your life that you can talk to about this who will respond um, immediately and with great grief and great love. All right. So... We're going to kind of turn away from the heavier stuff um, and and get back into a little bit more of the sort of like quotidian difficulties of being a person. Um, And the subject of this next one is simply unique living situation. Dear Prudence, I've recently entered a romantic relationship with a man who's in an open marriage. His wife is a dear friend of mine. Due to unfortunate circumstances, the beginning of this relationship was significantly stressful, and I vented about this to a relative, asking that she keep this in confidence. She instead took it upon herself to inform my parents, who I still live with, to save money after college. They do not approve of polyamory, and I have since blatantly lied about my current relationship status in order to keep in contact with my boyfriend and his wife. Recently, this couple has suggested that I move in with them. It's an attractive idea, but I don't know how my parents would react. I fear they would try to put a stop to it if I tell them if I tell them who I intend to live with. And while I'm aware they cannot legally stop me from leaving, they could disown me. I'm not sure I could face that. What options are available to me? So I I, I don't want to be like too hypervigilant. I'm curious, you know, given that this person is apparently recently out of college and still living with their parents and and really distraught at the thought of having their parents, like, disapprove of them. Um, and the boyfriend and wife in question are married and apparently have their yes. own place. Like, <laughs> how much older are they Would you believe you? that's exactly what I thought? I, I even, you know, even if, I mean, people can get married at, you know, young ages. Maybe they're the same age. but. Even if they are, I think that going from one couple's house where you are the most junior person there to another couple's house 
where as a newest roommate, mm-hmm. you are also the most junior person there, is maybe not as big a step up as you need to take. Yeah, I think especially like given the vagueness of due to unfortunate circumstances, the beginning of this relationship was stressful. Um, again, that does not mean you have to break up with them or that they are like de facto being predatory and and bad. Um, but given that the beginning of the relationship was really stressful and it took a real toll on you and the only person you were able to turn to in that moment was a relative rather than like a peer yes. or a friend. Um, I think. A, a, a better thing for you to do is either save up money so that you can get a place by yourself um, or or move with friends that you're not seeing romantically. You know, it's a it's a big step to move in with somebody that you're seeing. It's a, it's an especially big step if they are both in like a, a marriage with legal protections and you're not. Um, and I think that it will go a long way towards developing a sense of independence and a sense of freedom um, to Live somewhere that is neither with your parents nor with an older and established – sorry, another established couple that is inviting you to join yes. them. Yes. And also, if they are offering to let you live there rent-free or at a discount rent, don't accept that. Uh, that's not a good situation because it it gives you a reason to stay with them that might not be in perfect accord with your desires as someone in a relationship. And you don't want to right. have to prioritize having – a place to live over being happy with your boyfriend and his wife. Right. I think you've also learned an important lesson about what you do and don't share with your relatives. I think definitely had you written to me before asking, should I vent about this to a relative? My advice would have been not unless you are comfortable with coming out to your whole family. Um, not that coming out is always the, the the best phrase to use for polyamory. I'm not really there's a lot of different ways that language is sometimes transferable from other communities and sometimes ways in which it isn't. But anyways, unless you were ready to talk to your entire family about this, um, I would not have counseled you to talk to a relative because that's a big secret to ask someone to keep. Um, And again, I I definitely understand why lots of people who are in fantastic, open, polyamorous relationships still choose not to talk about this with their biological families. And that does not mean that they are, you know, less than fully mature or need to develop more independence or doing anything that they shouldn't be. It's simply the the choice that is best calculated towards making you know, um, life easier and simpler and, and, and good for everyone involved. So that is not the problem. I think it's more just the ways in which all of this has been developing reads to me like a very young person who is perhaps new to um, – interpersonal relationships of such a dynamic and you know who do you talk to when you're frustrated versus how do you press pause and reflect on some of your feelings um yeah i i feel like the letter writer maybe has some growing to do still and again i'm not saying this like i I don't want to be too hard on the letter no and and i also i don't want to read in things that aren't there but if there's any chance that the thing that the parents disapprove of is not exclusively the polyamory, but whatever stressful circumstances were disclosed to them. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's very hard to take seriously the advice of your parents if your parents are the kinds of people who would disown you for that or really for anything. But if there are issues that concern them that are not simply the fact that your boyfriend is married, maybe, I mean, don't do what they tell you. I mean, God forbid, don't, don't do what your parents tell you. But Maybe think about that if there is anything there. Right. Yeah. Try to ask yourself as neutrally as possible. Could they have reasons to be concerned about this particular relationship beyond simply the fact that, you know, it's a little shocking um, for someone to date more than one person at the same time? Um, And if that's a possibility, that might be worth considering. I I think, too, ask yourself, you know, if the fear is my parents will disown me, then that would mean that if you were to move in with this couple who they presumably knew you were dating, you know, if they ever found out where you lived, they would know. I, I, unless your parents are extremely gullible saying, oh, yeah, I know I was dating them a while back, but now we live together platonically is going to be a hard sell. So if you were to make this move, you would be committing to a very difficult lie that you would have to maintain 24-7. Yeah. And it's much it's much easier to have maintain a private life that doesn't where lying doesn't even come up as a potential issue if you're not living with your parents. Because they won't ask you where you were two hours ago if you're not living with them. They won't know. And it just makes things easier all around to not be 
living with your parents if if it is financially possible. Yeah. So I would say continue saving money. Um, if this relationship is making you happy and you are being treated well and and there's not, um, you know, a really messed up power dynamic between you all, certainly continue seeing them. Um, but but hold off on on moving in with anybody until you feel like it's a decision you're making out of desire rather than out of necessity. It's one thing to move in with someone because you you need to because of finances. It's another thing to move in with one or more partners because of financial necessity. And if you don't have to do that, I think it's good to avoid it because it can set up some equally difficult dynamics. Um, and, you know, if if the age gap is big, if the financial gap is big, um, if part of the the circumstances of this relationship were stressful because, um, you know, they've been telling you a lot about how old you are for your age and how mature you are for your age and they just connect with you. And yeah, I'm speculating a little bit, but I just investigate that. Check in, do a little like get the temperature of the room. And and also, I think if you're talking to a relative about something like this, simply saying, hey, keep this confidential is a little naive. Yeah. And um, really, it's 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 tempting, but it is not good to let your boyfriend rescue you from your parents unless you're in really immediate danger. And that's a different thing. But 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 yeah, you, you want to rescue yourself from the situation if you possibly can, because it sounds like yeah. your parents are not understanding people. But I don't I would I if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I don't get the sense that that this is a danger. Do you think, am I wrong? I don't, I don't get a sense of danger from this, from the parents, but. No, I, I think, I, I don't think we have sufficient evidence here to say it sounds like this is a deeply manipulative and and patently dangerous situation, but it just seems like it could get there pretty quickly, especially because the letter writer says, I've recently entered into a romantic relationship. So again, like, they may be the greatest people. You guys may all be within two or three years of age. Uh, you may have a very, very healthy relationship in all other respects, but it's also very new. So, you know, there's there's no if it's good now, it's going to be good in a year. Um, It's going to be good if you have your own apartment. Um, There is no reason to rush to live together, um, especially if like the various um, downsides would be pretty significant. And good luck. You know, this is tricky stuff to navigate. I would also encourage you to find other people who are in polyamorous relationships who you're not interested in just to talk to so that you have people that you can kind of share your 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 challenges and your struggles with um, and who can kind of give you feedback on like, hey, this is really typical for people who are in relationships like this or like, actually, that one, that sounds really out of left field. I'm not so sure that that's as, as typical um, and can kind of give you feedback that's not simply I am horrified that you would date in any way that is not monogamous, and I think it's bad. End of list. I think that will probably be the most helpful thing for you. Well, Zoe, this next one, this last one. Oh goodness! I I think I've never gotten a letter like this. This is a novel. This is this is actually three different novels and one short story that I've. This is this would be an amazing novel. Yes. Yeah. Um, It is really something else, and I'm really glad that I think it's my turn to read because. So the subject is not my sister. Dear Prudence, I've lived in the same neighborhood for seven years. Last year, Jim and Anne, who are new to the area, moved in next door. We have young kids around the same ages, and Anne and I actually have the same last name. Furthermore, both sets of kids have hyphenated last names. We're friendly with them and often go out to dinner or share meals at home. But while I've had some time to develop a community in the area, I suspect that I am Anne's closest or even only friend here. Last week, while talking to another neighbor, I was shocked when she asked me if Anne and I were close growing up, seeing as how we're sisters. When I told her that we aren't, we just share a very common last name, she looked confused and said that Anne had told her she was my sister. As it turns out, from talking with others, Anne has told this to a lot of people, from our kid's school principal to her plumber. In addition to being completely bizarre, this puts me in an awkward position of having to expose Anne's obvious lie whenever it comes up. What should I do? I don't want to ruin our friendship because I really do like her and I want her to feel welcome. But at the same time, I'm not her sister. Whew. A uh, couple things. Um, Go on. Well, I hate to, I, I, I don't mean this in any kind of accusatory way, but are you sure you're not her sister though? Because she seems pretty sure. That's one, well, that's that's not really one thing. This is, uh, I, I take yeah, it back, you're not her sister. I don't know but about that. This is, this is, uh, almost exactly like uh, Shirley Jackson's short story. That's I think the most frightening one she ever wrote. Um, and oh, the Demon Lover? No. Well, no. I it's I always think it's that one. It's not. I looked it up because 
it is my favorite, and I forget the title. It's called Just Like Mother Used to Make. God, it, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's from the is, same collection of short stories, I think. Yes, this is this is a cautionary tale about what happens when you go along with people because it doesn't make any sense, and you don't know what to do, and then it's too late. And I, well, I won't, I won't recap the entire short story, but point is, do not allow reality to reshape itself around you without fighting back because she's not your sister, and it is all right to say that you're not, she, she's not your sister since she's not your sister. One possibility I, that does occur to me that is a long shot, but it is possible. If she has this quality to an even greater degree of being uncomfortable contradicting people, could it perhaps be that someone assumed you were sisters and she didn't contradict them soon enough and then she felt she had to go along with it? I mean, right. that doesn't I, make I think, sense, but nothing makes sense, really. So I, I think that's probably the most um, generous observation, and I hope that that's the case. And honestly, like, you know, th- th- there's a number of other possibilities. So far, this has not caused you any harm. This is not a malicious lie. It's possible she feels really embarrassed. It's possible it's one of those things where, you know, um, somebody made an assumption, she didn't correct it, and then it spread without her active participation. It's also possible that she has felt... Um, lonely and alienated and has started telling the story and there's something complicated going on there that she needs to kind of work with. Either way, I think you can approach this uh, in a way that is both kind but also honest. I I think you just speak to her directly. I think you just say, you know, Anne, uh, I want to ask you about something that really surprised me. I was talking to somebody recently and they asked uh, me about what it was like to be sisters growing up. Um, She told me that you had told her that we were sisters. Um, I've since heard from a number of other people that you've told them the same thing. Um, And I wanted a chance to, to ask you about it because I don't know, you know, has this been a conversation you've been having a lot? Um, is this something that somebody assumed once and then may have been kind of spreading without your knowledge? Uh, what's what's going on here? I'm confused. As you know, we are not sisters. Um, that, I, I think that's a pretty... Yeah, I would, I would try. I mean, I don't know if this is a good idea or not. I would try to give her an easy out to say, like, oh, I, I don't know why they said that. Like, I That's so funny because I would never have... Yeah, not not to allow her to lie her way out, but I was just going to say that sounds like a chance for her to lie. Well, just just in case, I mean, I, again, it's a very remote possibility, but just in case there was a misunderstanding and she didn't actively spread the story, she just didn't correct it in time, and then other people sure. heard, which I, I know is not likely, but but well, I do think saying like I wanted to hear about it from you gives her the opportunity to say what her side of the story is. Sure, um, and it may be that there's a sort of goofy explanation for it and she's like yep it happened one time i was sort of embarrassed i didn't know this person very well it seemed like an easy enough thing to not want to correct but then later i realized one or two other people um had had heard it as well and then i felt embarrassed but i didn't want to say anything or there could be something else going on or you know she she either way i don't think you've just spent too much time worrying about how to bring it up with her as long as you are fairly kind and honest you just tell her what happened and ask her what she knows about it, that's it. Like, you're not responsible for the fact that this is a weird situation, so it's not on you to sort of, like, massage the truth um, yeah. or, like, couch it real, real, real gently. Um, and it is fine. If, if other people ask you, like like this letter says, like, what was it like being sisters? You, you can you can just say, oh, we're not sisters. You don't have to right. play along. And, in fact, uh, if it were, I would be very tempted just to see what happened and not correct anyone, but uh, that's bad advice. Don't do that. Uh, it would be people. good in the short story, but not so much in the real life. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yes. And certainly, you know, if you're also emphasizing like this, you know, this doesn't change the fact that we're good friends. I really enjoy your company. I just want to know what's going on um, so that you're making it clear. You're not like I have exposed you, you fraud. Um, um, and that, you know, if her primary response is one of embarrassment and humiliation, um, God, this happened when I first moved here and I didn't know how to correct it and I thought people forgot about it, um, then that definitely, like, leaves uh, a lot of yeah. warmth on both sides where she, really, she understands that you're not being like, what the hell have you been saying about me, you weirdo? But I just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a different answer she could give and I can't think of one, which is the fascinating part to me because... Because what else could she say other than that it was a misunderstanding she didn't mean to? Honestly, yeah. if she were to say, like, 
I'm embarrassed about this. I have been telling people somebody assumed it at first and it made me feel really good. And like other people liked me because of my association with you. Um, And I I feel really embarrassed, but I did just keep lying. Like that's at least interesting and 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 something I think that you could talk about and and it might be something that you would have to kind of recover from as friends but it doesn't necessarily mean she is a, a an unrepentant jerk like there's room I think here for oh, complexity no, no um, I honestly like I wouldn't be mad I would just be fascinated but I yeah I, I, I think I would I, I would I would have some like uh, feelers up because I would feel like does this mean that there's other things that she would lie about you know can I trust her the way that I thought I could yeah or does um, she but, believe it I mean I you would assume she doesn't because you assume right. she also knows but you never know right. but yeah it would certainly like while it would have me a little bit more on my guard I wouldn't necessarily think wow this is a person I absolutely cannot trust do not want to be friends with want to get away from um, I, I think my my primary response would be some of, one of like mostly neutral slightly suspicious but still friendly curiosity. Yeah, that's good advice. And of course, like if you do feel weird about it or if you really don't like her answer, you know, you can you can back off from that friendship. That's totally okay. Um, but then people right just ask you the, why you won't talk to your sister anymore. So you yeah, absolutely. Continue saying like, and you don't have to say like, Anne was lying. If somebody else brings it up, you can just say, oh, we're actually not related. You must have misunderstood. And most yeah. people are going to say either, oh, I guess they did. Or no, she like sent me a notarized letter. And then, you know, <laughs> the, the web might be a little more thick than you initially believed. And you might learn some more. But please write back with an update because I really, really want to know. Yes, what I she do says. too. I, I, yeah. I desperately do. Yes. Please, please, please. Yeah. Send us one as soon as you can. Well, Zoe? Yes, Daniel. We did it. We did, I guess. I guess we did. Thank you so, so much for taking all this time out to solve the problems of the world. Well, it was it was easy. Um, thank you for bearing with my uh, inexperience with microphones and whatnot. And uh, You know, I, I have some experience with microphones, but I don't know anything about them. So, frankly, I don't think experience when it comes to microphones um, means a lot when it comes to being on this show. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.